Welcome to Modern Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operations and Quality at Vizient and Practicing Internist. On this episode, I'll be talking to two leading experts about cardiac arrest, which has a fatality rate approaching 100%, and ways artificial intelligence can identify at-risk patients before an event happens. So joining me are Doug Bryborn and Logan Brigman. Doug, Logan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us here. So Doug, please tell the listeners about yourself and what you do at Vizient. Terrific. So thanks for having me be part of this podcast. I'm an associate principal at Vizient for the last five years. I really concentrate on clinical programs and also with bringing members and industry together to be able to work and get better outcomes. Prior to joining Vizient, I spent 26 years in clinical practice at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, all in cardiology, where I spent much time on clinical programs, quality, safety, and outcomes. And Logan, how about you? Logan Brigman, CEO at Empiric for the past couple of years, but I've been at Empiric for eight years now. My background's in software engineering and a number of different companies on multitude of projects. Glad to have you both in. So Doug, what is sudden cardiac arrest? As a physician, I do know, but what's its implication and its impact in our country? So sudden cardiac arrest is a primary electrical problem of the heart. It's not a heart attack. And unfortunately, 475,000 of these episodes occur annually in the United States. The difficulty with this is that 90 to 95% of the time, they're fatal. So when you look at the leading causes of death by a certain condition, sudden cardiac arrest is the number one killer in the United States. So Logan, how can AI assist in IDing patients who are at risk for sudden cardiac death? Great question. So AI is really just one aspect of the total solution. We view it as more of an augmentation of the existing clinical staff. And the velocity, variety, and volume of data continues to increase, and also the burden on the clinical staff. So AI is there as an augmented tool, as I mentioned. And so what we can do is read all of the free text of clinical notes, the interpretation of ECGs, interpretation of echocardiograms, look in the future for clinic schedules. And we're making a determination of three things. It's really a three-pillared approach. Number one, can we look for a cardiac disease, in this case, risk of sudden cardiac arrest? And if so, can I read the clinical notes and try to understand where is this patient within the care continuum? Does it look like they're being followed up appropriately? Are they being managed by the right people? And if not, then we have the facility to send out a notification within the physician's EMR to them to suggest, according to the guidelines, patient might present with risk of sudden cardiac death. It might warrant a referral. So if you start looking for keywords, say low ejection fracture or previous history of arrhythmias, is that an example where you're trying to lead to? Absolutely. Yeah. Critical piece is hemodynamically, are they meeting criteria for uh, potential maybe ICD, CRTD, or even just medical therapy, right? We don't care what the therapy is as long as we're getting the patient to the right place at the right time. So we are looking for key phrases, but also it's important to know that just because they might have left bundle branch block, low ejection fraction, and large QRS length, the patient might not have a willingness for therapy. So we look for those items in the notes saying patient does not want aggressive or invasive therapies or any indication of that because, again, we're still trying not to overburden the existing clinical staff. I actually see this as being a positive. When you're out in the floors of the hospital, which I affectionately refer to as being in battle, (laughs) what happens is you're constantly being interrupted. And that constant interruption sometimes doesn't let me through my thought process. Actually, I would say quite often to people that when I'm writing my note, I'm actually thinking of the case. Right. So these key little words may not come to mind. So this is actually fascinating for me. 
Hey, Doug, so when dealing with low ejection fracture, which for those who don't know, it's just the volume of blood leaving the left ventricle during a contraction. And the lower it is, the worse heart failure you can have. But can you just give us a generalization of some of the treatments available? Absolutely. So as you pointed out, heart failure is when your left ventricular ejection fraction declines. Normally, if you have not had any heart disease, that ejection fraction is anywhere from 55 to 70%. Once it gets above that, there's a problem as well. So when patients get lower ejection fractions, oftentimes they have signs of heart failure, which is shortness of breath and loss of energy. And the normal treatments, the beta blocker treatment, ACE inhibitors, diuretics is kind of the traditional therapy. When a patient gets down to an ejection fraction of 35% or less, we know that their heart failure is probably often worsening, but also their risk of sudden cardiac arrest goes up. So at that point, there's two different therapies. Number one is you still maximize medical therapy. And at that point, you might introduce an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, which would save their life if they go into a life-threatening heart arrhythmia. And at the same time, Doug, what is your experience with screening patients in clinical practice during your time at Mayo? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. So I think there's an assumption out there that once these guidelines are in place, everybody follows them. Oh, yeah. But as we know, in healthcare, there's a lot of human error that goes along. Yeah. And it's not that people don't have good intentions. It's just that people get busy and they have other things in their mind and they're treating their heart failure and they forget, I really got to work on this person and screen them for sudden cardiac arrest. So what we found at Mayo was we really need to put a very formalized program in place. You just can't leave it up to humans and with the potential for human errors for people to be able to be missed. So what we found was 30% of the patients that had this condition had never had a discussion with a physician regarding the risk of sudden cardiac arrest. So the goal there at Mayo was we want to have everybody have that critical discussion with their physician to decide what the best therapy is. And oftentimes it included having an ICD implanted, but oftentimes the patient would say, I just want best medical therapy at this point in my life and that's okay. But from a quality safety standpoint, let's just put that in the electronic medical record that that just discussion did take place. You know, I can often see, particularly when it comes to heart failure, where there is really guideline processes and treatments, patients aren't just getting them. And I think maybe a lot of the interruptions, particularly patients who get readmitted quite often, they come back in the same doses of medications that needed to be titrated. In addition to kind of eloquently you said, Doug, is the opportunity also to add palliative care under these treatments. There was a very recent study that actually showed that patients who receive palliative care, I'm not talking about hospice, I'm talking about palliative care, actually lived longer and had improved symptomatology as well. Exactly right. So, Logan, what is the process in implementing the empiric uh, sudden cardiac death screening tool into the healthcare environment? Because I certainly see the importance. So the process would require an HL7 connection to the hospital system's EMR. And we're agnostic to EMR, so we've implemented with Cerner, Epic, Allscripts, Meditech, you name it. It really matters with the HL7 is that framework that everyone knows. So what we'll do is we establish a VPN, send over the data to Empiric as it happens. It's called event-based firing, and this HL7 feed will send over echocardiogram reports, ECG reports, clinician notes, clinical schedules, and surgical schedules. So with those five, you can really start to understand when the patient gets a diagnostic, will trigger protocols to run, and in this case, sudden cardiac arrest. But we do have modules that go across structural heart, other electrophysiological diseases, and heart failure. So once we 
we start getting that data, there's a really big campaign towards making sure that the referring community understands what the initiative is about. So as I mentioned, the AI aspect is just one part of this. Right. You want buy-in from the referring community. So we'll go to heart team meetings and describe what we're doing and say, hey, we're not trying to tell you what to do. We're augmenting the practice. Everyone gets busy. There's a lot of things happening. So just consider this a safety net or this is a quality initiative. We'll go to internal medicine. We'll go to primary care and have the discussions about what we're trying to do is we're trying to offload some of the work by automating the assessment because not everyone will know, hey, guidelines are changing. The subspecialties of all these physicians, it continues to get even more subspecialized. So how do you keep up with everything? And so if we can create that automated version of this to help out and still give them the chance to manage the patients the way they want, that's really what we're here to do. So Doug, what hurdles do hospitals face when implementing a planning process? There's always landmines. There are always landmines. So the first one, and this isn't really a big hurdle, is you have to have that physician champion. So you have to have the physician, and it's going to be an electrophysiology doctor that knows that there's patients falling through the system that aren't getting identified. So it's like that key champion is what starts out the whole program. And as Logan and I know, as we go to centers, that's not hard to find a physician champion because they understand patients are being missed. Second obstacle is having that daily operations person that works directly with the physician, but just is passionate about the program. So that person is taking questions from the physicians that get notified. My patient has a low ejection fraction. What am I supposed to do? You have that person that's the quarterback on the day-to-day operations because that physician, you can't have them being that person. And then how do you get them into the echocardiogram lab? How do you get them into the EP clinic? How do you get them into the lab to get the device implanted? So that person is really, really critical. And then downstream, there's an issue. So it's like you're going to create all this new demand in the echocardiogram lab, the EP clinic, and then the procedure lab. So it's like as we're increasing volumes, how do you make sure that you can get an echocardiogram in a timely manner? Can you get into the EP clinic to be able to see a physician or even an NPPA can see these patients? Oh, and then do you have lab access? So how do you get them to those three areas? And Logan and I will both agree one of the biggest hurdles is IT. Mm -hmm. So IT has many, many different demands going on in the hospital. So this has to be prioritized in line with other initiatives. But most of the time for hospitals, they prioritize based on quality safety. Is there a financial margin and healthcare equity? And being able to identify patients at risk for sudden cardiac arrest, meet all three of those because death is a really bad endpoint. So when you go to IT and you push them for higher prioritization, it can be done and it should be done in this capacity. Yeah, I get that. So how many sites have this operational at this moment and how many do you even expect by the end of the year? So we have total 18 health systems that use the cardiac intelligence software, but we're currently piloting the risk of sudden cardiac death protocol at eight. So we have three running and five more will be notifying physicians by the end of the year. Due to the variety of sites that are piloting this, we'll be able to have really good data to go forward and say, even if you're a heart hospital, if you're an academic institution, fully employed or open, doesn't matter what part of the country you're in, we'll have the data showing that because of that variety of sites, this type of solution would work well for anyone. You know, Logan, I see this as an opportunity not only for sudden cardiac death, but really multiple conditions, frankly, even for documentation purposes as well. Any thoughts behind that or is this already in the plans? 
We do have some protocols across the cardiovascular service line. So we had started with structural heart back in 2016. So we've got mitral regurgitation, aortic stenosis, tricuspid regurgitation. We do things with triple A's, TAA's, heart failure. We're working on some stuff with hypertension now, as well as peripheral artery disease. So as you said, there's a lot of really positive applications across the board for this. And Doug had alluded to the IT burden that it takes initially with this, but we can solve or help all of those aspects of the cardiac service line with the same data that we would get with the sudden cardiac death protocol. So we can provide more value with the same IT work plan. You know, gentlemen, there is a clinician shortage going on mm-hmm. in addition to other staff and work-related issues that occur. And AI is an area that most health organizations are seriously looking into. Can you elaborate that further or what can they really do with AI? It's a great question. And I think there's two ways that I would look at it. There are health systems that we go and approach where they will say, we have an AI strategy committee. We're trying to look at ways to utilize that. And then there's other buckets where I would prefer to be put into of what is the problem you're trying to solve? And we really just using AI to help augment the solution. So we're trying to help end under treatment of cardiac diseases. And in this case, specifically sudden cardiac death. But it's like, what are your intentions of using it? What problem is it going to solve? I think you have to look at those two items first. I think one thing that, depending on who you are in the hospital, it helps standardize care. Now, some physicians will say, I don't want cookie cutter medicine. And it doesn't do that. It's standardizing based on best medical practices and white paper. It's not out on its own with AI people creating this. What standardizes the best care models. I think the other thing is the commitment to quality and safety and healthcare equity. It's like, you don't want patients that are in your system falling through the cracks when they go through and have medical tests done and they're not being acted upon based on science. And so, again, I think it really comes back to what is the problem you're trying to solve? How can you do it in the most efficient manner with the fewest number of resources required, both human and other IT resources, to get the best outcomes possible? And then the other thing, and I hate to bring the financial part of it up, is if there's financial margins with this. When I was at Mayo Clinic, it was no money, no mission. So it's like you have to be able to make money for your institution. So what a great way to use AI to improve patient care, quality outcomes, reducing death. And guess what? It produces a financial margin. So in many cases, it's really a home run to be able to use AI at hospitals. You know, Logan, considering some of the clinician staffing issues that we have and issues with provider burden, wouldn't AI be a positive? I absolutely view it that way, for sure. And one of the scenarios we had, there was a patient review we were doing to demonstrate the utility of the tool. And one of the patients we had flagged, we said that they had ischemic heart disease and a number of other factors. And the clinician that was also reviewing it had said, you know what? No, actually, I don't see that. But what had happened was there were 15 years of charts to go through. But our system, just because it's AI computers, you know, you can review that in a matter of seconds. And we had seen one from 12 years ago, a single line where they had been admitted for an MI at another institution, but it wasn't logged anywhere after that. So we were able to flag that. And those are those moments where when walking through these particular cases with physicians, all of a sudden that light bulb goes off. They're like, okay, I really see how this can be impactful for not only myself, but every one of my colleagues. Any final words, gentlemen? I'm glad that people like yourselves are really helping try to get this idea that artificial intelligence can help out in medicine if rolled out and seen appropriately. 
Doug, Logan, thanks for this discussion. And to our listeners, you can contact Doug and Logan at their email address in the resource section of our podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email, modernpracticepodcast.com. We post the link in our resource section as well. And please join us for other Modern Practice Podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. I'm Dr. Tom Villanueva. Thank you so much for listening. 